Well, I'm sorry I got people shooting at you again, Jack. Are you kidding? We're the perfect couple when we got people shooting at us. Just a slow time's not too good at Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the IMMP podcast, the Intermillennium Media Project. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And no surprise what the topic of this uh, week's episode is, since we gave it away at the end of the last one. Last episode, we watched Romancing the Stone as the beginning of our Valentine's Day theme, February episodes. Starring Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas. As and, that's just a f- kind of fun romp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we enjoyed that. So today we're talking about the sequel, The Jewel of the Nile. I was not ready for this to exist when I was Googling the first one, and I should have actually seen the fact that we'd watch it coming once I noticed that it was on there. I really feel like <laughs> I should have known this was going to happen. Well, I hit you with 2001 and 2010. In succession. I'm sorry, are we comparing 2001 slash 2010 to the Romancing the Stone Jewel of the Nile? I wasn't planning to, but give me a minute. I'm sure I can come up with parallels. (laughs) I can't let you do that, Joan. (laughs) (laughs) So this came out in, I believe it was the end of 1985. So about a year and a half after the release of Romancing the Stone, yeah. which is a pretty quick turnaround for a movie with a lot of location shooting and the like, especially since Romancing the Stone was not expected to be a hit. Really? It seemed to have enough to it, and maybe it's just because I know the, some of these stars now that, I mean, I'm not a very big, like, recognize the actor at first person. I I have to use notes to remember actor names and the like, but I recognize faces and I'm like, oh, these look like people who would get a big budget movie. And I'm realizing maybe that's because this was their big budget movie breakthrough. Okay. A little bit of the time travel of this podcast for me is messing with me, I guess. (laughs) Well, after an initial um, studio screening of Romancing the Stone, the studio pretty much wrote it off. They were not expecting it to make any money. I believe they pulled Zemeckis off of a movie project and replaced him with another director. What? I wish I could remember what movie it was. But but yeah, they were expecting this to be a disaster. So it was a big surprise when it really became uh, a moneymaker. And so some movies, you know, by opening weekend especially these days, by opening weekend, the sequel's been greenlit. They were not expecting to make any money on this, let alone want to make a sequel. And they made a sequel, and they made it fast, and released it a year and a half later, but they didn't get the same director. Oh, who directed this This one? This was directed by Louis Teague, who is not quite as well-known, I would say, as Zemeckis. He directed a couple of Stephen King adaptations. Uh, I believe he directed... A Dukes of Hazard movie. Oh, so, yeah. Didn't didn't go on to do quite as many things as Zemeckis did. But they but but Zemeckis was busy with Back to the Future, so he wouldn't come back to direct this. And, I mean, with my love of that trilogy, I can't I can't say that I'm disappointed that Zemeckis was off doing that. I love Back to the Future, so yeah, movies would be very different. If if that movie had not been made. But we really see how this is definitely a star-driven movie. And to some extent, it's a formula-driven movie. Because we have a different director, we have a different story, and yet we have Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas. We have Danny DeVito returning in a featured role. (laughs) Oh. And we have not a precise iteration of the same formula as 
Romancing the Stone, but a continuation of the formula, something that works in a similar way without rehashing. That was the thing. This was very much a, a continuation. There's so many sequels, especially to a romance plot, that will break the two up so that they can do the meet cute all over again. And this one has them fighting, but I never doubted whether or not they liked each other anymore. Right. They were they were angry at each other at times or disappointed with one another because they wanted to make this romance work. And you're right. It's you, You'll very often see in any movie where a growing romance is a plot or a subplot of the movie, and by the end, after things going this way and that, the couple gets together. If they try to make a sequel, the laziest thing to do, and a frequently done thing, is let's break them up. That's um, the National Treasure movies. Oh, yeah. I thought that was just, why do that? Is that all you could think of, is to break this couple up so that you could tell another story? Strange little tangent there. Remarkably good movie, Miss Congeniality. Its sequel starts out with a, we can't even get the other actor break up over the phone in the most, we have to reset the plot kind of heavy handed nature you'll ever see in film, I think. (laughs) It is astounding how much effort will be put into returning to square one for a sequel. And this doesn't return to square one. It actually keeps going. And that's what ma- one of the things that makes this interesting to me is it it explores that rarely explored question after the big romantic adventure in which the romance happens and the couple gets together at the end because they've been through fire together. What then? They do have to go off and live life of one kind or another. And is that going to work in the same way that fighting for their lives in a jungle worked? And here, now granted, these are not typical lives. They are fabulously wealthy thanks to Jack Colton's retrieval of the stone, El Corazon, at the end of Romancing the Stone. And probably because of the, from what it sounds like, incredible success of the slightly more dramatized version of their adventures that she wrote and published based on just how much her publisher is traveling around to meet them at an event and she's going to giant award ceremony things and everything else. Her career has stepped up another notch as well from already a very successful romance author to very successful. So they've got it flowing in from both directions in that sense. And the issue is now they each have a life they want to lead, a life they had dreamed of. Certainly in Colton's case, he dreamed of having a boat and sailing around the world. Can the the two lives that they dream of work together? She wants to continue her career, continue building this. Um, He wants to sail around the world. And we see at the very beginning of the movie, that's not necessarily working well. No. And at the very, very beginning of the movie, they they do something that was fun and I think kind of gutsy. Oh. Because in the beginning of Romancing the Stone, we essentially get a dramatization of the last chapter of her latest Western romance novel. And what we see is a pretty good scene and pretty good writing, or the movie is portraying it as pretty good writing for this genre. You can see why it's successful. It's got very full production values when they're doing it in the previous movie and the like. They start Jewel of the Nile with a dramatization of bad writing. Yeah, good point. It's It doesn't have the same production values. I hadn't really connected that, but you're right. It's more stagey, plain backdrop, more generic looking. It's it's a like a pirate ship fight. And, and the writing is just bad. And it's almost as the characters almost but not quite break character because of how bad the writing seems. And the two main characters in this scene that she's writing at the beginning of this movie, they are, of course, played by Jack Colton and Joan Wilder. For 
for the audience out there who who knows about our podcast, we record from our our mountain base here in the the rectangle of Colorado, and I have seen grander action and narrative from the during dinner uh, plays put on at local eatery Casa Bonita <laughs> than you see at the opening of this, and it includes the same number of dramatic dives into water. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, I, I think that the 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 pirate show at Casa Bonita is is a little more captivating. Yeah, than this was, which is a which is astounding. But <laughs> and then when we cut away from from this dramatization, we don't see Joan Wilder in tears as she finishes her latest soon to be bestseller romance. We see Joan Wilder on the deck of a the sailboat Angelina, knowing she's not writing well. And frustrated and, and wanting to do better because she she knows she can do better and she owes her publisher better. And then she commits an absolute travesty and tosses a very nice looking typewriter into the ocean. Oh yes, that was painful that for was any typewriter painful. fan. I'm I, I'm I'm very much a digital person, but I can respect something that was that well designed. Just ah, oh, <laughs> that hurt. I'm a pretty I'm a pretty digital person, but I like my typewriters and and like to take care of them. Ah, uh, yeah. But that does give us some pretty cool opening scenes, and it, it's a good example of this frustration with him out water skiing and her getting frustrated enough to throw her typewriter into the ocean. It's like, here's where everyone is. Very nice and clearly at the beginning. And she's got a publishing event to attend at the the port city where they happen to be here. She wants to go back to New York and get back to work in her regular routine because she's got things she needs to do, like finish this book. He wants to continue their round-the-world sale, and next stop will be Greece. And they realize, maybe this isn't working. And the so this is kind of the setup, and then the inciting incident to change everything is the appearance of Omar. Oh, Omar. He is, in keeping kind of with this formula, he is the the wealthy foreign fan of her work who wants her to come to his kingdom in North Africa and write his story because he is about to be crowned, inaugurated as the leader of his people, both political and spiritual, and he needs his story to be told. So once again, Joan Wilder is convinced to go to a foreign nation by a man in a white suit. Correct? Yeah, that's about right. Okay. But but what what about what about our our other lead? And what about the guy who was in a white suit last time? What about them? <laughs> Well, just as Joan is leaving with Omar, and they have this kind of touching, uh, Joan and Jack have this sort of touching goodbye. They're not saying it's over forever, but I really thought we were going to make this work, and it looks like we're not. Just as she's going off with Omar, Ralph shows up. (laughs) Ralph shows up in one of the most amazing character intros ever. Next time I am joining a Dungeons and Dragons game, I do not care if it's a one-shot, I am grabbing this intro, whole cloth, and introducing my character exactly this way. Just (laughs) crawl out of a bin, pull a weapon on one of the other players, and immediately berate them for whatever happened the last time in a perfect summary and threat moment that immediately makes me part of what's going on whether anyone, myself included, likes it or not. Don't cry, I'll keep you company. <laughs> Cartagena, Colombia, long time, no- oh, Damn shit. it, Damn it. Give me a reason, make my year. Go easy with the camera, right, buddy? You easy, easy, huh? I missed you. You're all I thought about for six months. They threw me in a jail, filled with rejects from the communicable disease ward. And rats, rats, I'm full of rat bites. Ten weeks of rabies shots this long, and all I thought of was you, Colton. Just you. It is <laughs> I would a, like to see that. It is an astounding little opening, and it is a brilliant bit of manic acting work from DeVito. 
So Ralph wants whatever money he can get out of Colton because he knows, knows Colton found the jewel and bought a sailboat and all that. But he also just wants to hurt Colton. He wants revenge. And this is interrupted by the appearance of somebody else who wants Colton's attention. Tarak, who's someone else from Omar's kingdom, wants Jack's help to A, save Joan, but more importantly, retrieve the Jewel of the Nile, which Omar has taken. And that gets Ralph's, Ralph's attention. Jewel? There's another jewel in the offing. Maybe I can't get anything from uh, from Colton, especially since during this conversation, his boat, the Angelina, blows up. So Ralph is sticking with Jack until he gets his share of whatever jewel this is. It's like, oh, like you 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 shorted me on the last on the last uh, deal I was working. So now I'm part of this deal, like it or not. <laughs> so it's not a unlikely couple thrown together and then have to survive an adventure together. It's a couple is split apart and he has to pursue her for a combination of reasons. So she winds up in Omar's kingdom, learns very quickly that things are not what they seem, that Omar is in the process of attempting to suppress a revolution, to advance his own reputation and cause as, again, both the the political leader and the spiritual leader. And do do you like my large military force that is making a very, very public display? I designed their uniforms based on one of, I think, I think it's like one of the bad guy groups from one of her own books, (laughs) which is like this brilliant, like perfect moment of trope awareness where it's like, you're not supposed to have taken inspiration from that group is almost plastered over her face. It's like, oh no. And uh, and in the meantime, though, he doesn't really want her reporting on his military hardware and plans and any of this. He just wants a, a canned story about humble local boy grows up to make good and, and lead his people to the future. And then she finds out that his real plan is to wage war on all the surrounding kingdoms. And, and we're talking kind of fictionalized kingdoms here in this general generic Nile region for the sake of yeah, the Yeah, it's... And it very quickly uh, becomes apparent that she's a prisoner. And she the only possibility she has of surviving this is to write what he tells her to write. Meanwhile, Jack and Ralph and Tarak and all of Tarak's friends are trying to get into Omar's place and get Joan out and retrieve the Jewel of the Nile. And uh, spoilers for the entire movie, of course, as always. Of course, because at this point, we've kind of got to reveal something, because while... While one group is bracing for this this attack that they're... They're planning how to get into the building. They're planning what to do. Joan is playing discount spy. Sneaking around. She has a lot more like agency to just go and do this than the character we saw from last movie. She hasn't lost her progress. The nervous and scared girl from the previous film is replaced with not ready for be for for the repercussions of exactly how dangerous what you just tried to do is because suddenly she's sneaking around the outside of buildings and she's taking covert photographs of things and not realizing that the flash is visible from <laughs> everywhere yeah she starts out as the person she ends the first movie as mm-hmm. which is great to see and but you're right she that doesn't mean she's good at everything and that she knows what she's doing and it is kind of fun to see that, like, they both are starting from the end of the last one, because Jack is much more team-oriented than the guy who was the, the the loner in the jungle at the start of the previous movie. He's not completely on board with everything going on, but he's working with people, and it, and he's like... No, no, you stay there. I'll do this part, but then you'll do this part. He's working a little bit more with, oh, yeah, everyone here has their things. I don't have to just do this on my own and and be this solo 
action hero kind of guy. Yeah, that's a good point. He still is abrasive, still has a short temper, but he and Ralph, if Ralph and his cousin Ira were kind of the the Mutton Jeff buddy team in the first movie, Jack and Ralph are that kind of team for a bunch of this, and they they try to get into Omar's uh, place. Jack, spur of the moment, introduces Ralph as somebody from the American consulate, and with with he's, this, he's, he's learning how to work with the team. And there's this absolute trust, like my friend from the American consulate, his you know ability to be the you know the smiling, confident hero is easily put into the unspoken i trust you to play the role i just handed you he's not he, he he's pitching it over with this absolute you'll follow along with this because you've got the ability to do it kind of <laughs> mode that doesn't always work but there's a there's an openness to it that's good and each of them is not great at their new skill set him attempting to to bring people in on his sort of fast thinking doesn't keep up pace, and she is easily noticed and spotted trying to be the adventurer herself. But they each get, like, halfway to somewhere. And before he and, and Ralph, before Jack and Ralph were able to get in to rescue Joan, Joan manages to break out to meet them on the outside. To everyone's surprise. Yeah. And she's not alone. No. She had before fallen through the roof of another holding cell and met a man. Met, and I'm just going to openly say this right now, the best character in this movie. The absolute best guy in this entire film. You're talking about Al-Juhara? Yes, Al-Jahara, also known as the Jewel of the Nile. Played by uh, Avner Eisenberg. And he is, yeah, it turns out the Jewel is a person. He is the, the spiritual leader of the people in this region. And he's kind of the holy fool sort of character. He is smart, but doesn't, he, he would rather use spontaneous decisions and observation than over analysis he's got a perpetual kind of zen calm some actors will play that and they'll just look like they are incoherent or or in some way intoxicated because they'll seem unstable but he plays it with this like oh yeah ain't the world weird (laughs) Kind of chill to him, and it's brilliant. And, of course, this is the the, the polar opposite of a personality like Jack's, so, you know, they don't get along that well, but Jack understands that kind of they need him to to help guide them. Part of the tension in the whole middle part of the movie is all this talk about the jewel. Joan knows that it's not a real gemstone it's this guy but she doesn't tell jack that partly and jack calls her on this later partly because she doesn't entirely trust that jack would help him and help get him to where he needs to be to thwart omar's plans if he didn't think there was really some kind of a jewel at stake and of course ralph is interested in a jewel he's interested in the money he Has no interest in this holy guy. Joan, weirdly enough, absolutely mistakes Jack's personality for Ralph's for just a moment. <laughs> it's like for ju- for that bit, she's absolutely mistaking who's got what motivation. And it's kind of nice because it's saying that they haven't had, they've had time together, but they've only had the one giant adventure that we saw them have. And now that I think about it some more, I think Joan's issue there was we talked about the fact that Joan starts this movie as the person she was at the end of the first movie. She treated Jack at times as if she assumed he was the same person he was when she first met him. Yeah. And didn't recognize that he had changed also. They and and he absolutely thought he had to go in and rescue this scared and and unprepared Joan 
and was so shocked when she came busting off of the roof on top of him and berated him, but was also caring as this, you know, rolling in out of danger action person in that sense, because he wasn't expecting her to be who she was at the end of the film. He expected her to be who she was at the start of the previous film. So they, they both kind of make that mistake about each other in this. That's a great point. It is it is balanced in that way. There are parallels. Mm-hmm. Neither of them recognized how much the other had changed. Yeah, and I'm not trying to... It doesn't dismiss either one, but the fact oh. that they're always kept in a balance between the two. It's, it's, a, it's a pair working together. It's never a movie where one of the two leads overtakes the other in terms of character development or centrality in terms of the narrative. So I think we need to address some of the other people they wind up dealing with and and working with, helping, getting help from. Jack and Ralph, and especially Ralph, spend some time out in the desert with the rebels, the people who are working against Omar and who want to retrieve the jewel. And they are not just rebels, they are at least a, they're, they're the core of this group. They're a bunch of Sufi. And, and Sufism, without, without claiming to know very much about it and without going into a lot of detail, it's a mystical Islam. And a Sufi path often incorporates things that would appear to be pure traveling performer kinds of things, like juggling and tumbling and all these. They're, also, they're, they're part of the discipline of that tradition, among other things. And this core group, I don't know if you're aware of this, Ian. The core group in this movie is played by a performing troupe called the Flying Karamazov Brothers. Huh? They were a, a, a juggling act primarily, but very, very popular in the 80s. Earlier in the 80s, they had a long-running show in, in New York Oh, wow. Um, with comedy and juggling. So the Flying Karamazov brothers, who are not really brothers, and they're not really connected to the Brothers Karamazov novel, uh, but they play Tarak, Barak, Karak, Arak, and Sarak. Oh, brother. Oh, no. <laughs> and not only are they interesting, philosophical, and yet guys who are also men of action, they kind of start teaching Ralph the more time they spend with him. Yeah. It's interesting. Jack's, like, sense of absolute self is like, okay, I can work with you, but I'm not getting into this. But Ralph is there, like, this high-strung, worried guy. He just kind of starts getting a little impressed by these guys and also is getting hyped about the sort of things they talk about. Ralph, if you want to be one of us, you must see with the eyes of your heart, not with the eyes of your head. Gotcha, yeah. Your heart will never give you fear or pain if you know our way. They have they have a way to get to him and get him, him moving. And he's already this weirdly physical, active guy, so he's kind of starting to get into their rhythm a little. And they sort of confuse and trick him into doing things that he would not have thought himself capable of doing, like walking across hot coals and things like that. Yeah, and that definitely comes... They, 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 they do a bigger scene of that later on in the narrative, but like, just his interaction with them is an interesting buildup across the film. So they are an interesting group to return to and kind of recenter the narrative periodically. But all of this kind of, like, as... The two groups are colliding with their plans and our our main pair reunite and start trying to escape with the jewel. We wind up with the big action mid-scene of the attack on the uh, fortress of Omar. Oh, right. How they actually managed to escape from the city after (laughs) Joan and the jewel escaped from the prison. Which is hijacking and taxiing a jet. (laughs) Yeah, they've got like a... An F-16, I think it is, that they're just destroying this courtyard and taxiing it through the streets of the city. Oh, yeah. And 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 all of this is like, there's, ba- like, for all of the, the brilliant grandstanding and people, there's remarkably little 
effective defense. So I get to have another instance of Gish Gang to say, oh, Omar, because he, he causes half the destruction <laughs> trying to take down this taxiing jet with, like, firing his own tanks into the city to try to hit it and throwing just absolute chaos. Now, th- them spinning around with active jet engines causes plenty of rather terrifying falls and destruction as well <laughs> but there's just like oh my goodness the it's it's a wild scene and when i expected a jet chase i wouldn't have expected this ever but it kind of fits <laughs> because of course they're not going to be able to get in the air they don't know how to fly a plane but they do manage the weapon systems so they do wind up being able to fire the guns and missiles oh yeah it is space invaders And, you know, all through this, especially towards the end, this um, this F-16 taxis and handles rather well for a plane that at the end has no wings, uh, a fouled rudder. It's, you know, interesting. It's covered in <laughs> colored garlands and <laughs> <Yes>. laundry. <laughs> but it does get them out of the city. And that whole sequence, it's big, it's, it's long. I think it could have been tightened up a little bit. Oh, yeah. It goes on a little bit too long. But that's the one part of this movie that rings a, a bell in my head thinking this was a studio note. Somebody said, we've got to make something bigger and more dramatic than the first movie. Mm-hmm. Especially since we're not just comparing ourselves to the first movie. We're comparing ourselves to all those other movies that were released in 1984. And we've talked about the fact that there were a lot of them, and they included things like an Indiana Jones movie. Exactly. So, this I, is, that it's a very Indiana Jones kind of mo- moment in that sense. It, it is. So it's it's a bigger, flashier, higher budget action sequence than we had at all in the first movie, and yet it doesn't seem entirely out of place. Yeah, it actually does have narrative impact because. It it reshuffles who's where because now our our heroes are together with the jewel and they're adventuring off to try to get back. Ralph is left with our raiding party who was as scattered as Omar's troops when the jet started taxiing through the fight. It is nice to see all the color coded good guys and bad guys just see a jet turn the corner and suddenly. Doesn't matter what color you're wearing, you're running that way. (laughs) (laughs) And all of the different groups involved are attempting to get to the city of Kadir, where there's going to be the big event and celebration of Omar's ascendance as as their leader. And we also learn that Omar is working with a special effects expert because he needs to show the people that he has miraculous mystical powers, just like the jewel is supposed to have. Because only then will they follow his uh, his leadership and wage war and create a great empire. He's got an extremely British rock uh, uh, producer helping him. <laughs> which was just an unexpected character choice, but I mean, it adds a, com- a very different tone to this. I wasn't sure what I thought of that guy and the whole like adding him in but it it kind of worked by the end it did make sense because you you needed for the jewel character and for the position that character had in the minds of other characters he had to be something really really special they had to at least think he had some kind of special powers and therefore to counter that it made sense that omar was trying to make it seem as if he had special powers and it's consistent that Omar wants his story to be written by a famous author, but he doesn't want the truth. He wants the story he wants to uh, that he wants told. He wants to lead the the people, but he wants to do it under false pretenses by making them think he has mystical powers. It's all consistent with the character of Omar. Oh, Omar. <laughs> And so then it becomes kind of a multi-party road or travel movie where each of the groups is trying to get to Kadir. 
And there are the typical formulaic stops along the way, such as the bad guys almost catch up. There's a a confrontation in a, a valley, and then the good guys escape. Uh, this is where uh, Ralph gets inducted into uh, the group by being tricked into walking on hot coals <laughs> and realizing, oh, wait, I could do that. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and starts getting into a little bit more so that when he comes back, he's a little bit like just a part of the group. He's got a, a new sense of purpose later when he shows up. Ha! I did it! I did it! I'm one of us! And it's also when, true to the, the formula, Joan and Jack and the Jewel encounter a village. Nubians! I was hoping to avoid them. Yeah, there's some really nice scenes when they reach the Nubian village. There's some really awkward bits, too. I think it's... It's a little weirdly done. It is. On the one hand, the Nubian villagers are presented in a very cartoonish kind of way. And then there's the the chief's son wishes you a, a long and happy marriage. Oh, we're not married. Married. Oh, in that case, the chief's son wants to fight you for the right to marry the woman. Yeah, okay. Um, not great. Not great. But on the other hand, we've got this terrific dance sequence with the like, National Dance Troupe of Senegal. Yeah. Doing an amazing performance. And Kathleen Turner as Joan joining in and kind of like the fiesta in uh, Colombia in the first movie. This is the, the, the brief respite and the chance to realize how they really feel about each other. In this case, realize that again. Yeah. It, there's, there's stuff that, that can work in that. Oh, it also gives us a chance to see the jewels, what I think are the jewels' real magic powers. Oh, yeah. When Jack has to fight the chief's son in this village, who then, of course, the chief's son is a big, strong guy who must spend all of his time wrestling. And Jack is, is, is losing badly. The, uh, the jewel just off to the side starts doing some party tricks, starts doing some balancing things and a little comedy shtick and distracting people just enough at just the right time so that Jack can pull a fast one and, and quote unquote, win the wrestling match. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is extremely clever and it's done with very little, it's almost none in terms of like dialogue. It's just this, like, you see this momentary cut to cut to the jewel. He thinks for a moment, he starts doing a thing. And then we watch all the reactions and we watch all the tides turn just on acting alone without, without the dialogue having to explain anything. It's all this very clean, clear scene of kind of that shift and what the opportunities are and all of that. It's, it's well done. And we see that in a few instances from this character, that it's about being spontaneous and it's about observing is his, his superpower. And to jump ahead a little bit, at the very end, we get a sense that, well, it kind of looks like he does have some magical powers. He's able to walk through fire and not be harmed. And yet they show it from enough angles that it could just be he's sufficiently calm and careful that he can find a path through these scattered flames that someone who was more panicked would not have found. Yeah, it's that same, like, calm and relaxed steadiness that he was able to portray before. This, like, understanding of his environment and this clarity. It blurs that line, and they do a great job. And this is one of those instances where it's like, he's just in the moment enough to be able to change and adapt with that moment and adapt the moment to him and his needs. Of course, eventually everybody gets to Kadir, including Jack and Joan, including Ralph, including the, the Sufis and the rebels. And there's a, a kind of a fun scene, which gives us another example of more people pay more attention to Joan's novels than then even she realizes. This bit is amazing. <laughs> Omar sets them up in this bizarre, elaborate death trap. Because, of course, the bad guy caught them again. Yes, of course. 
And Jack is wondering what kind of a sick, twisted person could even imagine this. What the setup is like, they're both suspended from the same rope. There's rats eating the rope, but there's acid making one of them fall faster. So unless one of them sacrifices themselves to give the other an opportunity, (laughs) they both die. It's like this this weird, like, micro-rope-based trolley problem (laughs) with this whole thing set up in it. It's like, what in the world? And of course, um, as, as Jack is wondering what kind of an absolutely sick, twisted, demented person could even think of this. Yeah, it's from one of Joan's books. <laughs> She's just like, <laughs> this This story, it was one of my best sellers. And there's just this like, absolute, my goodness, <laughs> response going on. But in the end, of course, they're able to thwart the bad guy and uh, and restore things. And they do... At the end of this movie, spoiler, but as part of our theme, they do get married at the end of this movie. They do. And they go off together to the, to the sounds of Billy Ocean's soon-to-be number one hit, uh, When the Going Gets Tough. Oh, goodness. Did make it to number one. Hey. That reminds me, I don't even think I mentioned in our last episode, the Eddie Grant song, Romancing the Stone. Oh. It was barely used, if at all, in the movie, Romancing the Stone. But I think it's a cool song. Oh, nice. And the fact that it wasn't much used in the movie didn't prevent them from creating a trailer video for MTV. Of course. But yeah, you get this giant grand confrontation with with the payoff to all this setup of craziness going on. And a a weirdly close encounters-like fight at the big staging area with lights and production booths thing. That's like the best description I have in terms of film, but it's got that same sort of grandeur in the weirdest way. But they get their giant fight and then have their happy ending. And in some ways, just having this final moment where each of them gets to to have a last interaction, acknowledging the other one's new type of of like how they have changed as people where Jack actively like leans into the fact that Joan is going to do an action thing for a moment, which is him being a team player, trusting her and her getting to be this more bold action person than she had been. It's kind of, they acknowledge where the other one has landed in doing so and therefore are good to go off together kind of having learned the previous movie through this one. And even Ralph changes through this movie in ways we didn't get to see him change before. And that's kind of fun. In some ways, it parallels the changes the other characters have experienced. He's not changed completely. He's still Ralph. He's still greedy. But he's not the same person he was at the beginning. Sufi's rule! Ah! It wraps up pretty nicely there. I think this is leading us into our, uh, our final questions. I think so. Well, it's a movie. Screen or no screen? If you screened the first one, screen this. Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think this movie, honestly, is as great if it didn't have the context of the previous one. And it's hard for me to say that because we watch them in pretty quick order after one another. We've watched them for this month as a set, which means my context is one, two. There's aspects of this movie that want to be able to be a standalone adventure movie, but it really is a a sequel, a continuation in narrative to some extent. And so I I have to couch the screen with the only if you've got the other one, because I don't know if it does hold up well enough without that. Yeah, I, I would say screen with that caveat. I would say it makes sense to think of these movies as one long story, and they're con- well constructed to work that way. The first movie stands alone. You don't need the second movie. The second movie doesn't really stand alone. I'm sure you could enjoy it, but it wouldn't make a lot of sense without the context of the first. But it's well worth watching if you enjoyed the first movie. So I'd say screen it. Oh, yeah. So our second question. Last uh, week, it uh, it led to this episode. Revive, reboot, or rest in peace for Jewel of the Nile? <sighs> This is interesting because part of what we had issues with last time was its depiction of its world. It was a little rough in doing so, and I think it does a rough job in the similar way here. But I think, and I think I, I don't remember what I gave it last time, actually. 
But now that I've got these two as a set, I'm going to say it doesn't need, I could see a revival of giving us like another adventure of Jack and Joan. But it'd be interesting to see that in the narrative of someone taking one of her later books and retracing steps of a journey they took to find like the thing they left <laughs> in a place. And that could give you chances to have actors reprise roles in a world and pop up with a new main set of characters using these books that everyone's apparently read everywhere. This is the second different place where there's an absolute Joan Wilder super fan in one way or another. So apparently, like, this world, her books would be well-read and someone would be like, didn't she actually go on adventures? Well, if we follow, this is one of the later ones. Maybe there is something to that thing there. You could have a fun story there. Absolutely not needed. This can rest in peace quite happily as a duo. But if you're going to do more, I think there's a structure there you could have fun with. Now that you've doubled down on just the fact that they have these types of trips and the fact that there are books of hers everywhere you look. <laughs> and that's something that you mentioned last time. What you wanted was not a sequel, not a reboot, but a re you wanted references. You wanted yeah. the treasure map from Romancing the Stone to be the next lot at an auction in a totally unrelated story. That kind of thing. Yeah. And, and at the end of Romancing the Stone, I was hoping for a sequel. I wanted more of this world. I wanted yeah. more of these characters. And that's why I said, um, that's kind of where I left it uh, at the end of our last episode. After this one, after Jewel of the Nile, I didn't, back when I saw this movie when it first came out, I didn't end this movie wanting a sequel. Oh. I thought this wraps up the story. They made it through what were the, the, biggest, most obvious challenges to transitioning from their last adventure into something like normal life. They learned more about one another and about themselves. They got married. We, we don't need more stories. And we, I, didn't, I didn't feel then that we needed another story. I certainly don't feel like we need another one this many decades later. But I was interested to learn in just reading th some things about this episode there was an unproduced sequel. What? They were going to make another movie. This well, is from, uh, from Wikipedia. Okay. okay. It never got beyond a draft screenplay, but the working title was The Crimson Eagle, in which Jack Colton and Joan Wilder take their two teenage kids to Thailand, what? where they are blackmailed into stealing a priceless statue. So they were working on this until, you know, well into the 90s. So obviously they were they were talking about some later stage in in Jack and Joan's life together and they've got teenage kids. But like in 1997, Douglas who produced the first two movies said he's really not interested in making another one. Yeah. Okay, I kind of like the idea of 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 that storyline. I I've always liked adventure movies that involve families. But yeah, I, I didn't need to be made. I'm not upset that it wasn't made, and I don't think we need to make any more now. So I think for Jewel of the Nile, and therefore for the set of Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile, my vote is I'm, rest I'm, in peace. I'm also just gonna ask, is there a name for this collective little series of films? I don't believe so. Because they don't have any like matching piece to their titles <laughs> i guess this i'm and, and naming it after like i i almost want to call it the the joan wilder films but that only gives her <laughs> right and i'm like eh, there's no good collective name for this series this ip is missing a core title yeah i guess if you've only had the two movies you don't necessarily get a uh, a franchise title i guess this is the blank the blank movies <laughs> Mm. You can't even say it's the 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 Kathleen Turner, Michael Douglas jewel heist movies because there aren't really jewels in both of them. No, yeah. 
Dang it. Okay. <laughs> I, that was one of the weird things bugging me trying to figure out what we're doing with this month, I must say. It's like, <laughs> this makes sense theming. It also makes no sense setup. Ah. Oh, well. But it, it was a fun theme for, uh, for February. I very much enjoyed that. And it was fun uh, sharing these movies with you because I didn't think you had seen them. Oh, no. I, I had not known of them. Honestly, I had not seen uh, seen Michael Douglas in anything other than the Ant-Man films much <laughs> that I could think of. So it's like, it's cool to see him in stuff. Yeah. It's like, oh, hey, I recognize that jawline. <laughs> so that's going to wrap it up for, for this episode and going to wrap it up for our February podcast. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh, more tales of media from the 20th century. Uh, where can they find you online, Dad? Oh, you can find me as by Matthew Porter most places. So you can go to bymatthewporter.com and you'll find links to whatever it is I'm doing. And you'll also find me on Twitter at by Matthew Porter. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found online on Twitter as itemcrafting, on Twitch as itemcraftinglive, and at itemcrafting.com. And you can find the podcast on Twitter as uh, IMMPcast. And you can also find us at immproject.com. And that's where you will find links to all of our past episodes and where you'll find links to our Discord. We'd love to hear from you there. Let us know what you thought of these movies. You'll also find a link to our contact page. We'll love to hear from you there. There's a theme going on here. We would just love to hear from you. Yeah, F- Find us somewhere. Pitch us The Adventures of Ralph, a complete <laughs> spinoff to these. Let's hear what you got. Yeah. I'm almost surprised, given that it was the 80s, that didn't become a Saturday morning cartoon. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> With some actor doing a Danny DeVito impression for the voice. Danny DeVito would do a Danny <laughs> DeVito impression for for the cartoon, possibly. Who knows? And on that webpage, immproject.com, at the top there, you'll also find a link to our shop if you like coffee mugs, t-shirts, fun things like that. And it's been a while since we've talked about what kind of designs we have available on that shop. So I'm just going to highlight a couple of them. One of them, of course, is the IMMP logo, our our modern and retro televisions combined. And another of the designs we have up there is Who Cares About Phobos? Ah, yes. Which is a reference to the very important question we asked way back in our Space 1999 episode. So if those sound interesting, you can find those plus other designs at our our shop. And to find that again, just go to immproject.com. And uh, you'll also find a link to our Patreon. Thanks very much. uh, If you're able to support us there, it helps keep the podcast going. And if you don't want to buy things at the shop, you don't want to support us on Patreon, but you do want to support the podcast, just tell your friends about it. Go on to Apple Podcasts, uh, give us a rating there, throw as many stars on there as you feel comfortable doing. Five is nice. And uh, that just helps other people discover it. But most importantly, thank you very much for downloading this episode. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope you'll be back when we are in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.